Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. Welcome to this episode exploring Tibet and magic. That's right, magic, with author and researcher and Tibetologist Sam Van Shake. Sam has been working at the British Library in London since the 90s, carrying out research on a project for the International Dunhuang Project. He specialised in the study of Tibetan Buddhist manuscripts and he's also taught at the University of London. For those who have an interest in Tibetan Buddhism, Sam's work will no doubt be familiar to you already. He's also been involved with cataloguing Tibetan tantric manuscripts and all kinds of interesting matters, and we get into quite a bit of that in our conversation today. I found Sam through his book on Tibet. Tibet uh, History was published back in 2011 and remains my favourite book about Tibet and its history. It's a great read and incredibly well written, and I really recommend it if you have an interest in such things. Sam has also written about Tibetan Zen. That's right, Tibetan Zen, and we're not using that word just to replace Mahamudra or Dzogchen. He's written various texts that have come out of the research work he has been involved in. So, many of them have names such as Manuscripts and Travellers, the Sino-Tibetan Documents of a 10th century Buddhist pilgrim, Esoteric Buddhism at Dunhuang, and something that might be a bit more familiar to some of you tantric practitioners, Approaching the Great Perfection, 
simultaneous and gradual approaches to Dzogchen practice in the Longchen. Other of his more approachable books are The Spirit of Tibetan Buddhism, which I've also read and can certainly say is a good read, an interesting introduction. Why? Because Sam manages to bridge the gap, really, between the perspective of a practitioner and that of the academic, without falling into the old trap of uh, assuming that Buddhism is inherently good and just what you should be doing, too. So it's not salivating over how wonderful Tibetan Buddhism is, and it's got a much more balanced and mature view. His most recent book, and the one that really motivated me to have a chat with him, is called Buddhist Magic, Divination, Healing and Enchantment. And it explores the role that magic has played in the history of Buddhism. So for those secular Buddhists, this might, well, raise a few hackles in the back of their neck. But of course, this is not some sort of ideologically motivated text to get you to engage with Buddhist magic. It's rather a survey of the role it has played. A kind of, well, an appendix to both his own work on the history of Tibet, but also David McMahon's The Making of Buddhist Modernism. It's also a work in favour of the myth of disenchantment, which a past guest of ours told us all about. That was Jason Josephson Storm, way back in episode 40. Sam makes the convincing argument that the exclusion of magical practices and even magical powers from most discussions of Buddhism in our modern era is, well, really part of the appropriation of Buddhism by Westerners, and a kind of refusal on the part of many of them to see how Buddhism continues to be practiced in the world today. Really, though, this might be an episode that asks you to improve your culture, right? Not just your pragmatism, your focus on results, on practice, and whatever else it is. But understanding and appreciation might be grown, might be developed, expanded, and enriched by understanding just how interesting human beings are, as well as their desires and their fears, and how that manifests in the role that magic has played. Anybody that read the Life of Milarepa by Lobzang Zhivaka, will, well, might remember some of the interesting practices that were employed by Milarepa himself, but the old magicians and wizards of the day trolling around the, well, the hills and valleys of Tibet. We look at magic itself and what Buddhist magic might be. We get to hear a little bit about Wittgenstein, and I hope you find this one interesting. Good morning, Sam, and welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. My first curiosity actually regards your surname. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, where does it come from and what's your heritage? A common question, actually. Ah, okay. um, so it's, it's a Dutch name um, relating to uh, probably to a village in the south of the Netherlands called Schaik. Well, my, my grandfather was born in South Africa. His father emigrated from the Netherlands. My father then in turn emigrated to the UK. So I have this Dutch name, but uh, rather indirect Dutch heritage. Pronounced, uh, I think, uh, in, uh, you know, by a Dutch person, they would probably tell me I'm wrong, but something like uh, Van Schaik. Mm. Uh, but we anglicize it as uh, Van Schaik. Van Schaik, uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. That's good to know, because otherwise I would have got it wrong for sure. 
Now, what about your research and writing? So you, I mean, you carry out research and you write about not only Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism, which is the work I've been most familiar with so far, but Zen as well. But what about you? I mean, this is another personal question. Are you, are you a Buddhist practitioner? And, and if not, how does one not become one after being so deep in the study of its texts, practices and history? Since I do describe myself as a, a Buddhist practitioner, uh, although I wish I was uh, more consistent about the practice part. Mm. But um, I yeah, ca- actually came to the academic study of Buddhism and practice at around the same time when I was studying at Manchester University. So those two things have gone together, really. I could say maybe going a little bit back that uh, I was exposed to Tibetan Buddhism, particularly as a child because my parents were working in Kathmandu mm. uh, in the 80s and I was there, uh, visited uh, Bodha Stupa and some of the monasteries there and uh, my mother was uh, becoming uh, interested in practicing Tibetan Buddhism. So I was uh, exposed at an early age, though being a young teenager, uh, it must have only gone in subconsciously because uh, consciously I just wanted to uh, go shopping and read books and all the, you know, hang out, the other things that teenagers did. Mm-hmm. However, that is there in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I, I did study Buddhism as part of the comparative religion degree at Manchester and uh, also became a student of the academic and Lama David Stott or Lama Jampa Taye, uh, who is still my teacher. With him, I did the PhD on the Longchen Nyuntik uh, while also practicing the preliminary practices or uh, Ngundro of the, the Longchen Nyuntik. So it's always gone uh, hand in hand in a way. Mm. Why do you think it, it did end up being Tibetan Buddhism for you though? And why do you think you've stuck with it and continued to both write about that part of the world and continue, as we now know, to be a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism? Hmm. There's that early exposure uh, in Kathmandu. And also, actually, after that, while I was at university, my parents continued to work uh, in Asia and were in Bhutan. So mm-hmm. I spent uh, quite a bit of time over the early 90s uh, in Bhutan. So I did the PhD partly as a way of continuing that engagement with the texts and practices of, of Tibetan Buddhism uh, in an academic way without really understanding what I was going to do with that PhD. So I, be, I was very lucky, in fact, that just before completing the dissertation, a job became available at the British Library working on the Central Asian Tibetan collections there. Mm. It was only for a, a year at that time, uh, and it was working on the wooden documents of the Tibetan army from the imperial period that were found by Oral Stein in the two forts in the in the desert. But uh, that year turned into another year. Um, I moved on then to a a project cataloguing the Tibetan tantric manuscripts in the same collections. And on from there, so I've kind of continued that engagement with Tibetan Buddhism, both from the kind of side of the interest in the practice and uh, texts of Dzogchen and um, Vajrayana, and also from working as a researcher and curator at the British Library, working on the manuscripts uh, and really getting into the earliest period of uh, Tibetan Buddhism mm-hmm. with a, with an interesting overlap in a way that things came together in a sense in that uh, the Longchen Nyintik that I practiced is uh, is within the Nyingma school uh, and that a lot of the early tantric uh, manuscripts and texts from Dunhuang from Central Asia that I worked on also relate to that 
early period, which is um, which went on to form the basis for the Nyingma school. So things like uh, Dzogchen, the Great Perfection, mm. uh, Mahayoga, they're all there in the manuscripts and also uh, handed down uh, and uh, developed as part of the practices of the, the Nyingma school. So things have, uh, things came together in a in a nice way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. It sounds like you were very fortunate and had some great timing. It sounds to me, though, also that this uh, this kind of work you you do and you've been doing has an element of treasure hunting to it. Would would that be true? Yes, there is truth in that. Although I, one of the things that I've found actually really being the benefit of working at the British Library and doing cataloging work is that uh, you can sort of move beyond treasure hunting. So a lot of work on the Dunhuang manuscripts being this very important collection of early manuscripts uh, in Chinese and Tibetan mainly that were discovered in a sealed cave in uh, Central Asia in the early 20th century. One of the features of the early scholarship on it was that it was very much treasure hunting. So people would discover a fascinating manuscript pluck it out of the collection, write about it and uh, and publish on it. But uh, that's a kind of uh, sort of lacks the context of the collection as a whole. And, uh, and it's only when you really look at Dunhuang uh, and its surroundings and the communities there that you can understand really who were, who were the practitioners of, uh, of Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism in Dunhuang at that time. Mm. So I feel like, yes, treasure hunting is kind of important as it is, and it's really fun to find uh, new, well, not new, but um, newly discovered interesting texts. But uh, it's important not to to kind of move beyond that and to understand the collection as a whole and see the community that we're, we're practicing. Mm. And this is something I've tried to say a bit about in, uh, I think I wrote about it a bit in the introduction to Tibetan Zen mm. uh, and a little bit in, in Buddhist magic as well. Yeah, I haven't read that one, I'm, I'm afraid. I've actually ordered it, so it's on the way. It's going to be on the list. But I did read uh, Tibet, A History, which is a fantastic book, and uh, I often recommend it. But there are other histories of Tibet, right? So, Sam, what drove you to write that? That book came out of a particular moment in uh, 2008 when Tibet was in the news again due to protests and uh, around the period of the Olympics in Beijing. Mm. And a, a editor at Yale University Press, Malcolm Jarrett, came to me to ask about the possibility of a book on Tibet. And I think what he had in mind was more probably a book that would cover the modern period and explain why uh, Tibet was an issue, why the monks were demonstrating and that kind of thing. And I managed to convince him that uh, if you wanted to understand that, you really needed to go all the way back to the 6th century and take it from there. So that was the the pitch I made. That was the the book that was uh, commissioned by Yale. Mm. The reason why I felt like it was worth doing was that, yes, there are other books on Tibet, but I didn't think at the time, and I think it's probably still true, there isn't really a kind of narrative history that takes Tibet from its earliest period that we know about Mm. from the historical sources right through to the the present day. The aim was to to make it a a narrative that would kind of grip people enough that even if they weren't especially interested in Tibet before, that they would be interested through reading. Inevitably, when you write a book, there's the editing process and things get left out. Is there anything that you would have ideally wanted to include in the text that didn't end up in it? There were some current kind of academic discussions about Tibet that I just couldn't include because it would have kind of taken away from the narrative 
Hmm. taken it too far into the theoretical realm. So I, I had to avoid some things that might have been interesting uh, and would also have shown that I was up to date with current academic uh, discourse. I wanted to write a book really for the people who were not fully kind of immersed in in Tibet studies. In terms of history, something that I, I thought I would deal with but didn't in the end was uh, the controversy about the identifying the rebirth of the Karmapa, mm-hmm. so the 17th Karmapa controversy. And that was something that I came across back in the, the early 90s when I was in Bhutan and it was being discussed then and uh, followed quite closely. And indeed, uh, there are at least one book uh, entirely devoted to that uh, controversy. But uh, one of the features of writing the book is I found in terms of the way the narrative flowed, there was just no way for me to kind of diverge, discuss that and then come back again. In a way, I found writing that book, not unlike any of my other books, actually was a bit more like writing a novel where you don't exactly know how it's going to go until you get to that point in the narrative. Yeah. So, you know, looking back on it now, um, what, what do you think would be an appropriate sequel to it in the telling of, well, the history of Tibet, but also Tibet today? Hmm. One thing that I felt is a limit, uh, limitation of this kind of book is that it does deal with the elite in society, really. So we're looking at records that are by the elite and for the elite. And therefore, it, it is a very top-down kind of history. We see what the government and the the important lamas and um, the famous um, figures in Tibet are doing, but not so much the life of people kind of day to day. So I felt like I wanted to address that at some point. And to some extent, I feel like with Buddhist magic, there's uh, an element that I have been able to address that a bit. Hmm. It is a bit more about the, if not the history, at least the practices of um, ordinary people. Mm-hmm. in Tibet. The book goes up to 2008. There are, of course, books that deal with uh, what's been happening more recently. I mean, if I was to write another chapter, I feel like it would be rather depressing. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't, you know, there's not been a great deal of development beyond the kind of increasing economic clout of China, which has meant that challenging uh, any kind of um, human rights issues has become more countries have been more reluctant to do it and uh, and of course we know in the current situation with the communist party in china things have become more restricted rather than less yeah. maybe uh, at some point it'll be interesting to write another chapter that will have something more to say than that but i, I feel at this point there's not a great deal to say that's not just a little bit uh, uh, sad really well, on that uh, slightly depressing note, why don't we talk about your book, Buddhist Magic? Although I'll I just say one thing about myself first, which is one of my favorite books in my early teens regarding Buddhism was The Life of Milarepa by Lobzang Zhivaka. It was full of black magic, <laughs> as well as the manipulation of weather, and there were spells for cursing people and, and so forth. And, and I think like a lot of people in the 90s, that was kind of my entry into the world of Tibetan Buddhism. So I had some rather odd ideas about it. But um, the latest title, uh, the title of your latest book, sorry, is Buddhist Magic, Divination, Healing and Enchantment Through the Ages. So I'm going to put you on the spot, I'm afraid. And although I've read a couple of interviews with you on the book, I'm still going to ask you this question. Can we go for a couple of definitions? So we've got magic, and we can just have magic on its own. And then we've got Buddhist magic. Could you say something about each, perhaps even offer a definition if possible? If not, you might tell us why. And could you also say 
how they are similar or different. Yeah, absolutely. In writing the book, I, I mean, it, it very much, as I said in the book and, uh, and probably in uh, uh, other interviews you might have looked at, it came out of a particular manuscript from Dunhuang, which is a compendium of magic spells, and that forms, the translation of that forms one of the chapters in the book. So rather than kind of deciding what magic is at the outset and then looking for it, mm. I was working on this compendium of spells and using that to kind of understand what I meant when I thought about magic and, and what would a useful way of thinking about this word magic would be. From that point, uh, I then was looking at what people have called magic in other traditions. So in another chapter of the book, I look at Greek, European, Chinese traditions in terms of the things that people have looked at when they talk about magic. And what's interesting is there is a great deal of overlap in terms of the the spells, the concerns that are addressed by the spells, the ways that the spells are carried out through gesture, uh, through reciting mantra-like syllables, uh, through using uh, ingredients concocted together, uh, all kinds of things like that. So without kind of coming in with a pre-defined definition of magic, it was clear that there was a kind of quite a, an overlap between what people were talking about as magic in, in all of these traditions uh, across the world. Look at that and looking at Buddhist magic in particular, I came up with a, a three points of definition. So the first one was uh, the text that we're calling magic always deal with the concerns of this world, not the next life, not enlightenment in the case of Buddhism, but things like uh, illness, things like uh, crops, cattle, childbearing, hmm. and, uh, and and trivial things as well, like arguments and uh, <laughs> wanting to break up a couple who uh, one doesn't think should be together. There's a, a real emphasis on on that, and uh, that is as true in the Buddhist tradition as it is in other traditions of magic. Hmm. The second thing that I found in, in all of the spells, pretty much, was unlike some other religious rituals, they're always very clear about what the result would be. So if you do this, if you do these gestures and say these syllables and... Um, mix up this this mixture, then you will have a result and you'll see it within a few days. Whereas in uh, activities uh, in religions, including Buddhism, it's often not really stated in the such clear terms as when you'll see a result. This aspect of, of, of magic, which is across traditions and also in Buddhist magic, is just a very clear and, and quick relationship between doing the spell and seeing the result. And as I say in the book, I, I think that makes sense if you think of a, the person who performing the magic, having a client and, uh, and needing to convince them that this is a, uh, an effective uh, spell or effective solution for their problems. And the final thing was based on the manuscripts themselves to say what we see across, say, the Greek magical papyri from Egypt and uh, the cuneiform tablets uh, from uh, Mesopotamia to the grimoires from Europe is that um, people collect these spells together in books. They tend to be collections of bringing together all of those kind of concerns that I talked about from medicine to crop yields to interpersonal relationships to, to childbearing and, and so on. So with those three things based not on kind of coming up with a theory of magical thinking or, or anything like that, you can 
actually sort of draw together a, a group of practices, manuscripts, uh, uh, and the people who did them under this name of magic. So that's what I found useful in the end. Hmm. So what do you make of all this? I mean, I'd, I'd like to ask really from two perspectives. I mean, the first would be professional. I mean, you write about this, you study this, but also personally, what do you make of all this? Especially if you're somebody that has an involvement with Tibetan Buddhism, you know, how do you make sense of it for yourself, for yourself and not just professionally? Yeah, as you say, sometimes in that early engagement with Tibetan Buddhism, one of the really fascinating things is this kind of willingness to engage in this sort of magical activity, whether it's rainmaking or bringing hail down on your enemies' houses, as, as Milarepa did, all the sort of uh, feats of Tibetan llamas like Milarepa, like uh, living on nettle soup or, or staying in the in the snow with wearing only a cotton cloth. So all of that is fascinating, but sometimes I think we move away from that in our engagement with Tibetan Buddhism towards a sort of fully, solely meditation and ethics-focused approach, which is very characteristic of the Western approach to Buddhism. Mm to strip it of this, the stuff that looks like superstition. My interest was in magic was not really, I mean, I'm not really interested in practicing it, and I, I haven't uh, <laughs> tried. <laughs> and uh, I do somewhere have a paragraph, I think at the end of the preface, basically saying, don't try these at home. Or, oh, nice. <laughs> um, but uh, I think, you know, we need to see the whole picture. Uh, as Buddhism comes to the West, if it is going to change, of course, but we need to see the whole picture before we see what needs to change, I think. Mm -hmm. So it, with, at a very early stage of engagement, just picking and choosing and uh, bracketing a whole part of the tradition as superstition and not really engaging with it isn't really good. So there's something uh, Wittgenstein writes about everything being open to view. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for our understanding that everything's open to view. Uh, and then we can have a kind of grown-up conversation. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. This tendency of Western Buddhists to play down the role of magic and also the supernatural is pretty well established by now. But I mean, the question that comes up for me in thinking about that again is, is you know, what, what might they be avoiding by doing so? And I mean, even losing out on. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Mm. So there's a book called Ancient Jewish Magic by Gideon Bohak. And he writes a bit about how the not only those who study Judaism, but those who, from within the tradition, were uncomfortable with presenting the sort of magical aspects of Judaism because it makes the tradition look kind of backwards and and so on. Uh, and we've had the same in Buddhism, I think. So in in avoiding talking about magic, the lamas within the tradition also have tried to sort of protect Buddhism from looking like a, a superstitious and uh, outmoded kind of um, tradition. And, you know, it's certainly not something that the Dalai Lama, who very much embraces the overlaps between science and Buddhism, talks about very much. So I think what's being avoided is the perception that uh, discussion of this, this magical aspect of, of Buddhism will just cause it to be rejected as, as just another superstitious uh, religious tradition. Mm. But what people are missing out on, I think, also, well, I think they're missing out on really understanding the whole, the wider worldview of those who've gone before us in the Buddhist tradition. Mm. For them, this has just been an acceptable part of their daily lives. If we can understand that better, I think uh, it does augment our basic, our understanding of Buddhism, of the tradition that we're, we're in. Mm -hmm. 
in avoiding Buddhist magic or saying it's not really Buddhism, we're kind of doing a disservice to the contemporary Buddhists of much of Asia who do continue to practice magical rituals and uh, who accept this as, as part of their own contemporary life. It does a disservice to them and uh, is a kind of rather arrogant assumption that, that we know better. Mm-hmm. You're right. And um, we, we've talked about that kind of issue quite a bit uh, on the podcast. We we had a chat with uh, David L. Uh, McMahon about Buddhist modernism and this uh, this tendency to deny the sort of um, the less uh, the less compatible aspects of, of the various Buddhisms across the globe uh, in order to find a nice sort of uh, Western presentation that fits with our current worldview. And I guess mindfulness is the kind of the the peak aspect of that project, but. Uh, Staying with with magic and uh, this uh, slightly less predictable world, um, one of my first encounters with Tibetan Buddhism in the flesh, so to speak, was with uh, an oracle. Um, I don't know if you've ever met an oracle, Sam, but it was the Shugden oracle who turned out to be a rather controversial figure. Um, Do you talk much about the use of oracles, both past and present, in your text? And have you ever had direct experience of one yourself? Uh, I haven't actually. So uh, that's, that's interesting to hear that you met the Shugden Oracle. Um, as you say, uh, certainly the, the most contentious of the deities in Tibetan Buddhism, although uh, probably not contentious in his um, role as an oracle. Yeah. Because that was always uh, accepted by, uh, by the Dalai Lama and indeed by the, the Sakya tradition before the, the Gelug tradition. Another thing, by the way, which I would have liked to have dealt with a bit more um, in my Tibet history, but didn't quite somehow find a way to fit into the, the narrative. Yes, I mean, I, f- I feel like the oracle does fit into this definition of, of magic, but it didn't fit into the book in that it, it wasn't part of that um, tradition of uh, compendiums of, of books of spells. So, Neither, not in the, the Dunhuang manuscript or in the, the later books like the Beobum genre, which we have authors like, uh, from Bari Lotsawa in the 11th century to Mipam in the late 19th century. Uh, they don't, uh, include this kind of, um, oracle material in there. So I feel like it's a slightly different, uh, stream of the Tibetan tradition. Mm. Uh, but it's certainly something that, uh, could fit under. Buddhist magic, and I think you're, you're right to uh, to bring it up. It would be interesting to to explore that uh, further. Mm-mm. I think it produces some kind of link to magical traditions in the West, because of course we have a, a relatively recent history of, of people attempting to commune with spirits and the dead, and and even uh, receive secret transmissions and blessings and so forth. But uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, we, we had a conversation with another chap who was talking about the, the myth of disenchantment, and he, uh, he presented quite a few interesting examples of how magic in the West hasn't died. It keeps coming back. There's this uh, kind of continuous desire for some kind of magical experience of the world. And you know, there's a tension there in contemporary society for us as Westerners. I mean, we've talked about uh, Buddhism coming to the West. You've talked about the Dalai Lama, you know, sort of playing down perhaps himself to some degree, the magical and supernatural aspects of Buddhism in order to align with Western science. Um, do, you, do you see much uh, tension taking place within the Tibetan community in exile uh, that's also thinking about these themes and, and taking them on as relevant challenges? Do, do you see any kind of overt reaction to uh, some of the history of magic within Tibetan Buddhism and some kind of denial of it in order to fit more effectively with Western society? Yes, I mean, it's interesting 
talking to young Tibetans in exile about this. There's both a, an interest in it, but also, I think, a probably justifiable fear that material like this could be used to denigrate not only Tibetan Buddhism, but Tibetans. So in a community that feels marginalized and, and, and under threat, a worry that uh, that this sort of material could be presented to put them in a negative light. Uh, and of course, there is the, the whole kind of narrative that since the, the, the mid-20th century from China about uh, modernising Tibet, uh, about Tibet being backward and feudal. So I think there's a, a justifiable concern with some uh, Tibetans in exile that this kind of material could be used in this way, which is why, as I was just saying earlier, it's been rather suppressed by the Tibetans in the uh, Buddhist tradition themselves. Mm. And what about um, the modern figure, well, the modern figure, a, a figure that continues to be contemporary within uh, Tibetan society, the Nakpa, uh, you know, a tantric practitioner, sometimes uh, considered to be a wizard. Um, we have a, a tradition of Nakpas called the Aroter in the West, uh, it's based in Wales. And these are figures who were considered to bridge that that world, right, between the, you know, mundane world of, of spell casting and so forth, and then the high-level tantric practices of seeking enlightenment. What could you tell us about the Nakpa, both historically and contemporarily? And again, what do you think we should make of such figures in the West? Because we've talked about magic, we've talked about this playing down of this history within Buddhism, and yet if we were to give up this kind of denialism for a moment and, and pay a bit more attention to what's surrounding Tibetan Buddhism today, what do you think we should, how should, how do you think we should respond to these figures? Should it be something along the lines of bewilderment or scorn or or something else? Yeah, Nagpa figure does go back as far as, uh, I think as far as we know, uh, there has been a Tibetan Buddhism. It's certainly uh, one of the kind of early iconic figures of the Nagpa tradition is uh, Nub Sangye Yeshi, who was around in the late 9th, uh, early 10th century. And there's a story about him that's in the Nyingma tradition that when there was this persecution of Buddhism by the Tibetan um, Tsempo at that time, that uh, the Nyagpas weren't persecuted because uh, Sangha Yeshi came before the king and demonstrated his powers and uh, scared the king enough that uh, it was only the monastics that he persecuted in the end and, and the Nyagpas were left to their to themselves. And that's a, a later story, but actually Nub Sangyeshi was a real figure and we know him from his work, which was both on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition uh, from Kriya Tantra to Ati Yoga, but also on uh, a book of spells uh, of violent magic, which he also authored. Right, going back to, to him, there's this, this tradition that mixes both the kind of enlightenment focused Buddhism and the magic for daily life. So it's, it's, it's certainly not something to be dismissed. I, I can't really speak about the uh, current uh, Western Nagpa traditions. And uh, I, I said, as, a, as a rule, try not to discuss other traditions because there, there, there can be a, a tendency amongst, uh, I think, modern Western Buddhists to think their, their tradition is, is the only genuine one. The others are all frauds. Or, <laughs> so <laughs> so right, I think right. live and let live as far as that goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I'd forgotten about that sort of silliness, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, that was certainly a feature when I was living back in the UK. And uh, it's unfortunate if it's still continuing, but there you go. Um, mm. You know, talking, talking about magic a little bit more, I mean, magic presupposes that, you know, re reality is malleable, right? And that we humans can intervene and modify it to some degree. 
Um, Tantric Buddhism, in my own experience, is perhaps the clearest example of this take on reality uh, among the the forms of Buddhism that I'm, I'm familiar with. Do you see any parallels between this idea and and any specific school of thought within Western Buddhism? Uh, sorry, not Western Buddhism, Western philosophy. Mm. Already mentioned uh, Wittgenstein, yeah. who I yeah. use in a, a few books now, just mm. to clarify my own ideas about trying to define Buddhist magic. So I used here him in that definition to talk about family resemblances. Mm. So you know we're not trying to come up with an essence of Buddhist magic, but just to look across what's shared in different traditions and to develop a, a definition out of that. But, you know, Wittgenstein was very much a philosopher of, of language, so he perhaps doesn't have anything very specific to say about uh, reality being malleable. Probably you need to look in more on the continental philosophers like uh, Heidegger and uh, uh, and so on. But unfortunately, those are not never the philosophers who've really caught my fancy. What I found at least with also useful with Wittgenstein, and I did quote him again in the book, was he wrote an, an essay that was published after his death on James Fraser's The Golden Bow, which was that early um, important book on on magic and religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he criticised Fraser because Fraser had this idea that basically mankind went through developmental stages from magic to religion to science. Mm. And so magic was basically a kind of poor early attempt at understanding the world, which then got refined through religion and then finally through science. So very much a kind of late 19th century triumphalist Western narrative about how wonderful we are. <laughs> so uh, Wittgenstein said, well, you know, that's not right, because you're saying that those people practicing magic were trying to come up with theories and were just doing it badly. Mm. But actually, the only people coming up with theories were people like Fraser, who tried to define magic as you know, like sympathetic magic, where he said, you know, you have a, somebody's hair, and therefore you can um, you can do something that will affect them uh, at a distance. Uh, and he called this uh, magic by sympathy. Mm. So he was trying to kind of define magic, but nobody practicing it had these definitions. They just understood uh, reality in a somewhat different way, that uh, the things could act at a distance rather than just through contact. Again, uh, liked Wittgenstein's take on that, that we have to look at things in the terms of the people who were practicing them and who uh, wrote these these things down. Maybe my engagement with Western philosophy is not quite what you might expect there. It's more to do with uh, really properly understanding things in their context and, and not kind of imposing your own mm. presuppositions or theories on them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that does probably address your, your question a bit. I, I, I'm partly saying that our own kind of social reality that uh, we live in in, in Western uh, contemporary society is, is only one mm. among many. I've got a couple of other things I want to ask you, but I want to give you just one more question relating to your book on magic, which is... Uh, you know, after writing it right now in this period, what would you like to see changed in terms of beliefs regarding magic amongst Western Buddhism? As I said, I I put a little proviso in at the end saying uh, what I've translated here is, isn't a, a living tradition. I can't guarantee any results. Right. Yes. So I, what I would not like to see is a lot of people setting themselves up as <laughs> Buddhist uh, magicians. And, uh, right. <laughs> it's not very likely, is it? But you never know. No, no, it's not very likely. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, what I would like to see is, is just uh, maybe a bit more open-mindedness about um, what Buddhism is. Mm. Uh, but also, uh, what I said at, at the end of the book is, you mentioned mindfulness, uh, and in some ways, 
I was thinking about the role that magic has played in the Buddhist tradition through the ages. Uh, one of the things that it has done is allow Buddhist communities to become embedded in uh, in social context. So when Buddhism moved out of India across the Silk Road towards China, one of the main activities of those monks was magic. And when they came to live in villages or towns, one of the main things they did was provide those services to the local community. So magic has served as this way of embedding Buddhism in societies and in new contexts. Mm. Now, is that what mindfulness is doing now? Uh, <laughs> or is or is mindfulness just um, plucking one kind of strand out of Buddhism and, and discarding the rest of it? Mm. So that, that's, I, in the afterward, I sort of very briefly uh, considered this question. You know, is there a something that is playing that same role that magic has played in Buddhism in, in helping embed Buddhism in, in Western societies? Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, mindfulness or uh, or similar kind of therapeutic things offered by Buddhist centers could perform that role. But on the other hand, if mindfulness is fully secularized, uh, commercialized, uh, and kind of then sold quite separately from Buddhism, then it's not really performing that uh, that role at all. Mm. That's an interesting thing to talk about from many perspectives, but one of them is that um, it brings up again a very old uh, dynamic within conversations, both within and between and about Buddhism, which is this idea of authenticity and purity and who's doing the real Buddhism, right? Who's actually doing the correct form of Buddhism and you know, mindfulness is a kind of double-edged sword. It, it kind of does what you're implying to some degree. You know, it uh, it opens up Buddhism beyond its own imaginary borders, so to speak. But at the same time, it does end up becoming a commercialized form of um, social discipline almost to allow people just to cope with the uncomfortable conditions of our age. And one of our past guests referred to that as neoliberal mindfulness. And I think his take is interesting. But again, I, I like what you said before about keeping an open mind about the sort of many possibilities of things. And what Wittgenstein said about the fact that we tend to close off certain perceptions we have from the world because it affirms an idea we might have. And therefore, um, we cease to be able to have this more open gaze and see the relationship between different kinds of ways of working or thinking about or interpreting a concept such as mindfulness or Buddhism or magic. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I guess we're just, we're just going to have to see how things unfold and maybe you'll end up writing a book about Tibetan Buddhism and mindfulness 10 years from now. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Surely somebody's already writing that book. <laughs> yeah, probably. And it's, uh, you know, probably selling well on a New York Times list somewhere. Right. Making somebody <laughs> a nice bit of coin. Talking about boundaries and different forms of Buddhism, um, I mentioned right at the beginning, there's this book of yours called Tibetan Zen. I didn't know about this book until I was uh, doing a bit more research on you. It's a very interesting and intriguing title. Can you tell us a little bit about it? And uh, is it merely, I don't know, some kind of stripped down form of uh, prototypical Dzogchen or, or what is it? Yes, well, it's something I came across going back to the early 2000s when I was working with uh, Jake Dalton on the cataloging project of the Tibetan Tantric manuscripts. Um, and we then kind of overlapped with this Zen material also found in the Tibetan manuscripts because they both referred to themselves, both the tantric tradition and the Zen tradition, as the great yoga or Mahayoga. It was puzzling. In the end, uh, I discovered that the 
Zen tradition calling itself the Great Yoga actually comes from the Lankavatara Sutra, so there wasn't anything particularly tantric about that. Although we did discover also that uh, some practitioners in Dunhuang, based on what we can see from the manuscripts, were combining meditation from the Zen, the Chinese Zen or Chan tradition, with their uh, Vajrayana sadhana practice. Maybe I should just justify calling it Zen. This is uh, texts which are translated largely from Chinese that come from the tradition that describes itself to Bodhidharma and his successors, and it quotes from various people from this early phase of Zen in China, which was later called the Northern School of Zen, and was characterized as being a more gradualist version of Zen, although that's not really entirely true. So it is definitely a Tibetan version of Zen that was uh, around in China at the time. We do also in the, the Chinese manuscripts from Dunhuang have uh, Zen texts in, in Chinese, which have been a, a major uh, source for really understanding the early history of, of Zen itself. In terms of Dzogchen, I did write about this a bit because it is a fascinating issue, the similarities between Dzogchen and, uh, and Zen. But it's hard to really say that one influenced the other. More specifically, what people have said in the past, that maybe Zen influenced Dzogchen, it looks more like they share a similar kind of attitude and perhaps come from similar sources originally. So things like the Lankavatara Sutra, the Prajnaparamita Sutras that uh, emphasize the, uh, the whole path and the goal are kind of the same thing, basically. Uh, and that this then feeds into the Tantras uh, and into Dzogchen texts. There's a shared purpose with Zen and Dzogchen, but in the end, I think not a, a direct relationship between them. That said, uh, there were practitioners in, in Dunhuang, as we see from the manuscripts, that were familiar with both traditions. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that I wrote about in that book was then why did Zen die out in the Tibetan tradition? Hmm. Uh, and I think partly it was that uh, Dzogchen uh, and then later Mahamudra offered much the same thing with more kind of incorporation of the the path, the uh, Vajrayana path as well. So they, they gave a sort of almost everything that Zen was offering, but uh, but more. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. You made me think again about uh, Bon, you know, and its own stories about the origins of, of Tantra and Dzogchen and these practices. Um, in terms of time, um, historical time, What's the relationship there? Because uh, I, I'm quite ignorant about Bon. I, I, I read Civilized Shamans uh, by Jeffrey Samuel quite a long time ago, and I know he talks about it a little bit there, but not a huge amount. Um, in terms of um, yeah, this arc of time and, 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 and the development of Bon, are you familiar enough with that in order to make some, um, I don't know, comparison time-wise between developments of Zen independently and then the Bon tradition of Dzogchen? Let me say something very, very briefly on, on yeah. Bon, and it is, does become confusing because there are rituals uh, called Bon in the Dunhuang manuscripts and ritual practitioners called Bonpo, but these are not really very similar to what you see later on in Tibet in terms of the Bonpo school. Okay. Okay. So it's really about uh, funeral rituals uh, and things like that, which seem to probably predate Tibetan Buddhism. Later on, those get incorporated into the Bonpo schools, but with a, along with a lot of other material which kind of mirrors Buddhism, yeah. like their you know, Bombo versions of the Prajna Paramita mm -hmm. Sutra and things like that. What we call Bon in the early period of Tibetan Buddhism, what we call it in the later period, are, are quite different things. All right, that's helpful. Thank you. I've got two questions. They're very, very short. 
this one would be uh, what continues to amaze you about Buddhism and, and the areas you research and write about? I mean, in other words, what is it that continues to keep you engaged in the work that you're doing? Hmm. Well, to, in Buddhism in itself, uh, I think the, the very simple and basic teachings I find as time goes on and I get older only seem more true to me. So mm. impermanence, um, suffering and the end of suffering uh, and attachments rolled and suffering, all of this seems you know, increasingly self-evident in the nature of life itself. Mm-hmm. As for um, academic work, I think uh, it's partly through that kind of um, just respect for the Buddhist tradition that I, I continue to engage in it, and, and partly through just working with this uh, really fascinating and almost inexhaustible collection of, of manuscripts from the uh, from the Silk Road and from the Dunhuang Cave in particular, which particular which always uh, throw up new uh, and interesting discoveries. Uh, and though I, as I said earlier, I don't like to call it treasure hunting. Uh, there is an element of uh, of wow, you know. I, never seen this before. You know, 20 years of looking at this material, and this is something new. It's always possible for, for that to, to happen. So there's a real uh, continuing fascination for me there. Well, that's great. I often ask uh, people this uh, to give me some recommendations for books, but often it's met by silence or professional courtesy of not wanting to offend someone. So I'm going to change it slightly. Are there any books on Buddhism that you are currently reading or have read recently? that you would recommend to a general audience? Yes. So I can look at my bookshelf at the ones that are, <laughs> are sitting there, mm. partly read. Reading at the moment, there's a book called Spells, Images, and Mandalas by Koichi Shinohara. Uh, the subtitle is Tracing the Evolution of Esoteric Buddhist Rituals. Mm. And he works on Chinese texts. So it's a very interesting parallel uh, movement to uh, Tantric Buddhism in, in Tibet. I mean, because of the nature of Buddhism in China, there's, there's a kind of less has been written about the Chinese Vajrayana tradition. So I find this a, quite a fascinating study. The other book on my shelf, which I haven't started yet, but is uh, looking very enticing, is called The Holy Madmen of Tibet by David de Valerio. And this is about the um, Yumpa, the, or the, the madmen of Tibet. We have the famous... Uh, Drukpa Kunle in yeah. Bhutan, uh, the madman of Tsang, uh, Tsang Yonpa. So he's, this is a, an academic book published by Oxford University Press. And uh, I think it's, it's going to be fascinating because nobody's really covered this topic as a whole before. I don't know, you may have read, uh, I think Keith Dowman wrote a, a translated the biography of Drukpa Kunle. Mm. I read that when I was in Bhutan and I was just fascinated by this idea that in Tibetan Buddhism there's an acceptance of this kind of crazy, outrageous behavior. That sounds like a book for me to read, so thank you for mentioning it. Well, look, Sam, uh, thanks for giving up your time and for, for sharing some of your, your thoughts here on the uh, Imperfect Buddha podcast. Uh, I recommend that listeners go and check out your, well, the two books I'm familiar with, but obviously all of your work. So that was Tibet, History, and then the most recent work was Buddhist Magic, Divination, Healing, and Enchantment Through the Ages. So highly recommended. Uh, Take care, Sam, and all the best with your your work and uh, your own personal practice. Thank you, Matthew, and you too. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.